We want to now turn our attention to Christ and uh, another lesson in Christology uh, that we want to put in the books. So let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you be with us by your Spirit. You be with the preacher and you be with those who are hearing. Awaken all of our faculties this evening so we can glory in and know more about the risen and ascended Christ. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we are continuing in our lessons in Christology, uh, and I hope that they have been of some use to you, uh, studying who Christ is and thinking about things that maybe you not have thought of before. Uh, thinking of Christ in categories, in ways that expand your knowledge of Christ, expand your reading of Scripture, uh, but also expand uh, the overall faith of the church, of what we confess uh, as Christians. Last time we were together, uh, we looked at a very controversial issue concerning the doctrine of Christ, specifically the atonement, those famous words, my God, my God, Why hast thou forsaken me? Or why have you forsaken me? Uh, And those words are quite mysterious, are they not? But I hope that last week's lesson uh, gave you a better understanding of how, as, as much as we want Christ to be with us and to, and we want, we want to uh, be in solidarity with Christ, or at least Christ in solidarity with us, we cannot interpret the Bible in such a way that allows other things concerning Christ to be um, undermined and to be totally negated. So people want to say, look how much Jesus Christ loves you in that he's willing to forsake his eternal relationship with his father in the crying out of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, in trying to get people to feel the great warmth of Christ's love, what have you have done? You have severed the Trinity. And we cannot interpret the Bible in that way. Uh, but there must be uh, a pattern. There must be uh, a uniform in how we interpret the Bible but also the things we confess the Bible says. The doctrines that we come up with or the church has has held on to. So when Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of anguish. More so, it's a cry of victory. Because if you remember, Jesus is quoting the very first line of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is not a psalm That's about one who has been forsaken by God, but one who seems like he's been forsaken by God. And in his seeming to be forsaken by God, he knows that God has not turned his face from him, but God is with him. And this is all going to connect at the very end. But this evening, we want to look at uh, maybe top five most controversial things 
throughout or the, that the church has had to deal with throughout the history of the church. Okay. <clears throat> if one was to ask you when Jesus died, when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, where did he go after that? What would you say? When Jesus gave up his spirit, where did he go? Where did he go? Well, throughout the history, throughout the, the history of the church, uh, there has been no debate of where Christ went. And we see this in the Apostles' Creed, where it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, if you are still wondering where did Christ go after his death, the Apostles' Creed gives us the answer. He descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead. Now notice what the Apostles' Creed is saying where Christ descended when he died. It says that he descended into hell. And then on the third day he rose again. What in the world do they mean when they say that Christ descended into hell? Well, we want to answer that question in this lesson, but also in Next Lord's Day evening's lesson. Uh, this is going to be a two-part lesson because in reading this and in studying and, and listening to various issues and debates and views over what is called the descent clause, I found that if I was to do this all in one lesson, we will break the all-time record for being in a service which is held by me which Anthony reminds me of frequently, uh, which was over three hours. I did a lesson on tongues. So uh, it wasn't three hours, but I'm sure for you it felt like that if you were here. So I want to break this lesson up. And what I want to do first in this lesson is I want to look at the biblical basis for this. And then next week we'll look at the theological, but also historical reasonings for it. Okay. And I think that they're, they're both equally important. But remember, saints, that everything we say about God, everything we say about Christ and the work of Christ must first be in the Bible. So it doesn't matter what a creed says that's been held onto the church. It doesn't matter what a confession says. But that confession needs to be rooted in the Bible. Okay? So we don't want to say anything above the Bible but we don't want to say anything less than what the Bible says. And I believe that when the framers of the Apostles' Creed said that Christ descended into hell, they were saying a, or really echoing what the Bible says. Now you're just wondering, okay, you just had a friend move over to Roman Catholicism. <laughs> Are you Roman Catholic yourself now? And uh, let me say that when they say that Christ ascended into hell, they don't mean what you think they mean. Okay, They don't mean what you think 
they mean. And we're going to get into what they mean tonight. So, <clears throat> let's consider this phrase, he descended into hell. First, what is death? What is death? What is death? And the um, definition for, you know, the lamest definition for what is death is simply this, that at death, the body separates from the soul. At death, the body separates from the soul. Now we have to answer, what is the soul? You may have heard this before. You're my soulmate. Uh, all these other things. What is the soul? Well, the soul is called or known as the form of the body. The soul is the form of the body. Now, what does it mean for the soul to be the form of the body? The form of a thing makes it to be what it is. The form of a thing makes it to be what it is. So our soul informs our body to be human because we're not just a soul, but we're also body and soul. So our soul informs our body to be what it is. What are we? Human. So our soul informs our body to be human. It is said that the soul animates the body. It controls all of who we are. The soul makes our heart not only beat, but to be. It makes our eyes not only to see, but to be. So our soul causes all of who we are to function properly. And at death, the soul no longer animates the body, but separates from the body. That's why people in the grave have no control. People in the grave can no longer see. Their hearts no longer beat because they have no soul. And when the soul separates from the body, the human being is no longer a human being. You can't be a human being with no soul. But also, you can't be a human being without a body. And with no soul. We read of this in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 6 through 8. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's troubles lie heavy on, with, on him, for he does not know what it is to be. For who can tell him how it is to be? No one has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of the death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Here it says in verse 7 that death is the inability to retain the spirit. Death is the inability to retain, to hold on to your soul. Because at death, your soul is longer with your body. James 2.26, for as the body depart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart works is dead. So we see here from the Bible that death is a separation of soul and body. Death is a separation of soul and body. When men die, the body remains on the earth and it dissolves. But the soul does not dissolve with the body. And that's because the soul is spiritual. The soul is spiritual. If one asks, how come the soul doesn't remain with the body and dissolve with the body? It's because the soul is spiritual. And when one dies, the soul goes somewhere. 
when one dies, your soul is going somewhere. Now let's ask, where do souls go? When one dies, where do souls go? In the Bible, it identifies the common place of the dead as Sheol or Hades. This is very, very important to just keep in, the, in your memory bank. In the Bible, it identifies where all souls go when they die as Sheol or Hades. Okay? Just remember those two words. Now, both of these words, Sheol and Hades, they mean the exact same thing. Their definition is this. The place of the dead. The place of the dead. Or the place of departed souls or spirits. So when you think, or when I say Sheol, or when I say Hades, think of the place of the dead. The place of the dead. Now, there is a difference between these two words. And the difference simply lies in that Sheol is the Old Testament word for the place of the dead. And Hades is the New Testament word. For the place of the dead. That's really it. As we know, the Old Testament and New Testament are written in different languages, right? One in Hebrew, the other in Greek. In the Old Testament, the word for the place of the dead was Sheol. In the New Testament, the New Testament word for the place of the dead is Hades. They mean the exact same thing. It's just depending on whether you're reading in the Old Testament or New Testament. Okay, but the words are interchangeable. We read of Sheol in the, Old, in the Old Testament in Psalm 86, verse 13. And hear me now. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You have delivered my soul from the de- from the place of the dead, essentially. We just read about this. Genesis 37, 35. Jacob says... All of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. What is he saying? What is Jacob saying? That he's going down to the place of the dead. His son, he thinks, died. And he's saying, I'm going to go down to the place of the dead to be with him. Well, what's this word for place of the dead? Sheol. We find this uh, in Acts 2, 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So when Peter says you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that word Hades is simply Sheol in the Old Testament. You will not abandon my soul, the thing that left my body, to the place of the dead, Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Now it's important to note that in the Bible at times, um, Hades can refer to the place of torment, which is what we think of hell. But that only depends on the context, okay? You have to really read the context to understand what's going on. So, for instance, in Revelation 1.18, And the living one, die, I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So if you're saying that Hades only means place of the dead then what do we make of Christ's words here in Revelation 1.18? Well, it's simply that Hades in this context means hell, the place of torment. Okay, so depending on the context, um, it can either mean the place of torment, but more generally, it's always referring to the place of the dead 
where all souls go when they die. Okay? So in the Bible, to go to Sheol or Hades, when you hear that language, it simply means to die, but more specifically, to enter into the place of the dead, where all the other souls are. Now, in addition to the common place of the dead, which is Sheol or Hades, the Bible speaks of two compartments or two sections in this common place of the dead. So just as if I was to say, go to the house, my keys are there. Are there. Well, you're going to ask me where in the house is your keys in the kitchen in the bathroom in the bedroom in what section are your, your keys located? Well, similarly with the place of the dead. In the place of the dead, there are two sections where souls go. They're all going to one place, but they won't rest in one place. Okay? <clears throat> one section is reserved for the righteous, and the other is reserved for the wicked. So in Sheol, in the place of the dead, there is one section that's reserved for the place of the righteous, and there's another section that's reserved for the place of the wicked. Okay? So when one dies in faith, they are not commingling with those who don't die in faith. But they go to different places. Let's consider the section that's reserved for the righteous. When a believer died in faith, their souls go to the place of the dead, but more specifically, they go to a special and unique place named paradise or Abraham's bosom. Paradise or Abraham's bosom, or if you want, this is heaven. So when an Old Testament believer died, they went to either paradise or Abraham's bosom. They are essentially this place that is for rest where the righteous go. Abraham's side is mentioned as a place where the righteous dwell in Luke 16. And we're going to expand on this a little bit. But we also see in Luke 23, 43, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, he said to him, truly, truly, today you shall be with me in paradise. Remember that, right? Today you will be with me in paradise. Here, that Christ doesn't deny that the thief will die. You guys notice that? That Christ doesn't deny that you're going to die with me. But rather, Christ says, you're going to a specific place when you die. He's naming the location that the thief will be in or be at. And what's this location? Paradise. This is where the righteous go. This is where Abraham, this is where David, this is where Isaiah, Adam, Eve, they are all in Abraham's bosom or paradise. Now let's consider the section of the place of the dead that's reserved for the wicked. And this place of the wicked in the Bible is identified as Hades, Gehenna, or Tartarus. This place of the wicked is identified as Hades, Gehenna, or Tartarus. So when you read in the Bible a word that says Gehenna, Tartarus, just think of the place of the dead where the wicked go. 
Simple that. Simply put. Now, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus are each Greek words that translate to hell. So when I say Gehenna, when I say Hades, when I say Tartarus, just think, oh, that's hell. Hell. Matthew eleven twenty three, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. In other words, you will descend to the place of the dead, but more specifically, where the wicked dwell, hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So now let's ask. Now that we have that there is the common place of the dead where all souls go, but all souls are not just in a room together. They are separated. The righteous go to where the righteous dwell and the wicked go to where the wicked dwell. We have to ask, where in the Bible do we see this exemplified for us? Is there in the Bible a place where there are two compartments? Does the Bible speak of the place of the dead having two sections? Luke 16, if you would turn, uh, let's open your Bibles and let's just go there. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. A very, very famous story in the Bible. I'm going to begin in verse 19 and read all the way down to verse 31. There was a rich man. And let me stop first. Let me say. While I'm reading, remember what we have talked about. There's a common place of the dead. And there's a place where the righteous dwell and where the wicked dwell. So remember that when you're reading this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed and and with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was burned. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger to water in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, "Child, remember that you are in. But remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Uh, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us." And he said, then I beg you, father, send to him, my, to, uh, to him, my father's side, my house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, least also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father, Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Let me stop there. Here, Jesus is giving us a visual picture of what the underworld looks like. Jesus is giving us a visual picture of what the underworld looks like. Notice, saints, 
There's two men. They both die. The poor man and Lazarus. They both die. They both enter into the place of the dead. Okay? They go to one place. But when they get to the place of the dead, they separate. One man is carried by the angels to Abraham's side, which is the poor man, Abraham's bosom. And the other man, Lazarus, is taken to the place of torment, hell. And notice that there's a great chasm that divides those who are at rest with Abraham and those who are being tormented. This, friends, is one of the clearest examples in all the Bible of what the place of the dead looks like. You have people who are with Abraham resting, the righteous. And then you have people who are in Hades in anguish. Again, two men both die, but in death they are not in the same place. Theologians have said that when the righteous die, the righteous go to the upper part of Sheol, And the wicked go to the lower part of Sheol. They separate. So in summary, when one dies, they go to the common place of the dead, which is Sheol or Hades. And depending on whether one is a believer or not, they go to two places, one or two places. When the Old Testament saint died, they went to paradise or Abraham's bosom. And the wicked unbelievers go to Hades or Gehenna. Now, with this in the background, we can answer, where did Christ go when he died? Where did Christ go when he died? Many will argue that when Christ died, and you might have thought of this in your head, when Christ died, he went to be with his Father in heaven. When Christ died, he went to be with his Father in heaven. I'm sure that was your answer or what many would think. But what I want to argue is that when Christ died, when he gave up his spirit, his human soul descended to the place of the dead. When Christ died, his human soul that is still hypostatically united to his divinity descended to the place of the dead. And that is what the Apostles' Creed means when it says, He descended into hell. It means that he descended into the place of the dead. Where in the world is this scripturally? That he descended into the place of the dead. And he did not go to be with his father in heaven. The latter I'm going to answer next week. But the former we're going to answer right now. Acts Acts 2 verses 22 through 28. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you ourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. So let me stop here. He's saying that David, in Psalm 16, is saying something about Jesus Christ. says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand, and I not be stricken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell at hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life and you have made me full of gladness in your presence. Here we see that Christ is sent into the place of the dead by way of comparison. Peter is saying that Psalm 16 is not written about David primarily, but it is written about Jesus Christ. These are words about Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy concerning Christ, but more so, it's a prophecy concerning what happened at Christ's death. It's a prophecy concerning what happened at Christ's death. So, Psalm 16, when we read these words, they're actually the words of Christ. And when the psalmist says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption, that's speaking of Jesus Christ's descent into the place of the dead. Notice the words, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. What's Hades? It's the place of the dead. So you will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead. But also, too, many people, when they think about this verse, I... They think, well, that simply means that Christ is not going to die. But no. Rather, it means that God won't abandon Christ in dying. Because look, it says, you will not abandon me. You will not leave me alone. You will not leave me in the place of death. You will not let me see corruption. As those who die, what? Will see corruption. Everyone that dies will see corruption. But not Christ. He won't leave his son in the place of the dead. That's what Psalm 16 is really dealing with. Specifically, in verse 27, that you will not abandon the Messiah to the place of the dead. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. We're going to actually expand on this. And this is one of the most interesting verses concerning the descent. Next week, or yeah, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might feel all things. Now, in this text, specifically in verse nine, the ESV doesn't do a good job in translating. It reads again in saying he ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Lower regions, the earth, is a wrong translation. It actually should be translated as the lowest part of the earth. And I think you have that in the era in Asby. That's what the New American Standard Bible says um, that I think only Pastor Antonio has in this church. But that's what the NASB says, as opposed to the ESV. The ESV says the lower regions of the earth. The NASB says the lower parts of the earth. It should say lowest parts of the earth. And when it, sa- when it says the lowest parts of the earth, hear me, that is an Old Testament description of Sheol. That is an Old Testament description of Sheol. What is Sheol. The place of the dead. 
So Paul is saying that Jesus descended not just to earth, but to the lowest parts of the earth, which is the place of the dead. But also, Paul is making a comparison here, right? He's saying that the one who ascends to the highest of heavens, notice when he says, um, uh, the one ascended on high, left a, uh, he led a host of captives. He ascended far above the heavens. Well, would it make sense that the one who ascended to the highest part, which is heavens, descended merely to earth? No. It would make more sense in saying that the one who ascended to the highest part, which is heaven, also descended to the lowest part, which is the place of the dead. That is a more natural reading of this text. And I think that that's what Paul is saying. That the one who has ascended to the highest heights, heaven, is the one who has also descended from the lowest part, the place of the dead, where the dead dwell. Romans 10, 6 through 9. Uh, two more, three more. <clears throat> but, the righteousness, but the righteousness based of, on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Friends, notice what Paul is doing in verse 6 and 7. He's again making a comparison. Just as Jesus literally ascended to heaven, he literally descends to the place of the dead. Now, how do we know this? Because Paul uses abyss. And right after he says abyss, he says, bring Christ up from the dead. But I want you to look at something. Look at your Bibles, if you would. In verse 7, Paul says the dead. Paul says the dead. Do you see that in your Bibles? It says the dead in verse 7. Chapter, Romans 10, verse 7. The dead. <clears throat> In the Greek, the word dead is a plural noun. The word dead, that word dead, is a plural noun. So it literally means the dead ones. The dead ones. In fact, in the New Testament, about 99% of the time, it means the dead ones. So the ending of verse 7 should actually read like this. That is to bring Christ up among the dead ones. Rather than saying, bring Christ up from the dead, bring Christ up from the dead ones, those who are dead. This, friends, is a clear reference not only to Christ's descent into the place of the dead, but also rising from among those who are dead. So, what Paul is saying is, amongst the people who are dead, in the place of the dead, Jesus rises. <clears throat> at this point, if we were doing a, if we weren't recording, I would ask for questions. <laughs> but we're going to keep going. Two more verses uh, that I want to give you, and then um, give you some closing comments. Matthew twelve verses thirty eight through forty. And then some scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you." But he answered them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given." To it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And here's where we want to hone in on 
This is where we see the descent. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay? Here we see Jesus parallels his own experience with death with Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that just as I am, will be in the tomb for three days, Jonah was in the belly for three days. He's saying that, but also he's saying more than that. Okay? Rather, Christ is speaking of his descent into the place of the dead. Consider Christ's words in verse 40. Again, Jesus says, The Son of Man will be in three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And when Jesus uses that phrase, heart of the earth, he's alluding, he's harking back, he's echoing Jonah's prayer when he was in the belly of the fish. One more time. When Jesus uses that phrase, heart of the earth, he has in mind Jonah's prayer when Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. Let me just read for you Jonah's prayer. Jonah 2, verses 2 through 6. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, my into the heart of the seas, and flood the surrounding me. All of your ways and billows pass over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were trapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me, brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. Notice, friends, that that the, the words that Jonah is using to describe his experience in the belly of the fish. Notice the imagery. Jonah describes himself as being into the deep, in the belly of Sheol. Now, whether you not you believe that Jonah actually died or he died figuratively, I don't think that he died literally. I think he died figuratively. But he's also describing himself as being in the heart of the sea. As, as his life being brought from the pit, even to the roots of the mountains, imprisoned by the earth forever. This imagery, this, these words, they depict someone who's taken a journey into the world of the dead figuratively. Although Jonah has not died, literally, the way he's praying, he's sounding like someone who has died. And he's using words and imagery as one who has gone down into the place of the dead. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, when he says the heart of the earth, he's bringing his hearers back to Jonah's prayer and he uses the phrase in the heart of the earth, that phrase alone to summarize Jonah's imagery of being in the place of the dead while he was in the belly of the fish. Again, when Jesus says, the Son of Man 
will be in the heart of the earth. That phrase encompasses Jonah's prayer and all of his imagery in Jonah chapter 2. In other words, Jesus is saying, just as Jonah died figuratively, I will die literally. Matthew Emerson sums this up well. He says, they both were in the same place of the dead. Jonah's body is in the fish, the grave. Jonah, that's Jonah's grave, figuratively. While his soul is metaphorically in Sheol. Jesus' body is in the heart of the earth, which is the grave. While his soul is literally in the place of the dead. What we have seen from these text saints is that when Jesus died, he went to the place of the dead. When Jesus died, one one ask you, where did the soul of Christ, the human soul of Christ go when he died? Say, oh, he descended into the place of the dead. But I want you to notice something, saints, that when I when I was giving the biblical data for this. I wasn't merely just proof texting. And I think a lot of times when people say, well, what is your biblical data or evidence? What are you basing this off of? Bible-wise, they want to go to a chapter and a verse. But sometimes it's more than that. And sometimes doctrine is not developed by just merely a verse here and a verse here. But it's understanding the context. It's understanding the language. Who Paul, who Peter, what Christ, who Christ is speaking to, what is he alluding back to? We see this descent doctrine or clause Developed not merely by, oh, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, we see that Jesus descended to hell or descended to the place of the dead. Which we do see that in some places, but rather we see patterns. There's patterns in the Bible that show to us that Jesus descended to the place of the dead when he gave up his spirit. Now, there are, I'm sure, many, many questions I spoke about the Old Testament saints. When they died, they go to paradise in Abraham's bosom. Does that mean that when the Old Testament saint died, that they didn't go to heaven? Well, what about when you said that when Jesus died, he didn't go to be with his father? Where do we see that at? Where do we get that from? Doesn't it say that his, that he, that he gave up his spirit into the father's hands? Oh, there's other questions as well. Um, how are we to think of this descent clause? With relation to church history, there's been much debate on whether whether we should actually recite this. He descended into hell. Um, and there's many, many, many other questions. But also, I think the one question that <clears throat> was in my mind when studying this is, okay, so Jesus descends to the place of the dead. Where did he go? And what did he do there? Did he go to the place of the righteous? Or did he go to the place of the unrighteous? And when he descended, what did he do? Was he just there, hanging out? What did he do? I want those questions to be (laughs) burning within you, I hope, and lingering with you, uh, because we will answer those questions next time we meet. What is the, how are we to live in light of this lesson, okay? How are we to live? Well, two things. First, uh, now you have a theological reasoning. 
for what happened when Christ gave up his, his spirit? You can answer, he went to the place of the dead. So you have a, a theological reasoning, and, and, um, and now we have you know, doctrine that's been developed for you that I'm sure many of you, including myself, have not even thought of before. Where did Christ's soul go when he died? Right? Well, he descended to the place of the dead, where all souls go when they died. But also, saints, what we see, and this has been one of the great, great practical applications that the church has always gave concerning Christ's descent into hell. In that, in Christ descending into the place of the dead, it shows Christ's solidarity with us. That, that he is, and he went through and experienced what we will experience one day. And it, and, and it comes, and it makes this one verse, probably everyone's favorite verse, come more alive to us in light of this doctrine. Psalm 23, verse 4 says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We love that verse, do we not? But have we ever noticed and ever thought that this verse is speaking of Christ? And not merely about the psalmist and not merely your own experience. But first and foremost, it's speaking about Christ because Christ, he actually and literally entered into the valley of the shadow of death. He actually died in the same manner, body and soul separated, that you will die. So when we think about death, we are to be comforted because we are hanging to one who's already experienced and gone through death and he came out the other side because he was resurrected and therefore we will be resurrected one day as well. This is the comfort of this doctrine, is it not, saints? That the one who descended to the place of the dead went to the same place that I will go. He will experience the same thing, rather. Death. But we aren't to fear death. Because he is with us. His rod and his staff will comfort us. That's all that I have for this evening. And uh, next time we were together, we will again look at what did Christ do when he descended? Some of the historical reasoning for descent and maybe some objections that I could answer. Let's pray.